Evergreen Sermons Online in Pastor Michael Gabbert's series covering First and Second Thessalonians. This message is from April 1st, 2020. Hey, it's good to see you. Or I, it would be good if I could see you. I'm glad you're here to listen to the next lesson in our series on, on uh, living the future now. It's a series from First and Second Thessalonians. And just like what we're experiencing on Sundays... Uh, it seems like these lessons are incredibly relevant. Um, often when I'm, when I'm teaching, I'm, I think about how this is impacting uh, the people that, that are listening to me. But uh, in this lesson, we're going to be in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And, and I have to tell you right up front that this was a powerful message that God gave to me. Um, in the midst of everything that we're going through as a church and as a culture and, and really as a generation. Um, I realize kind of the, the unidentified um, discomfort in my own life comes from this sense of isolation from my people. I'm beginning to have a little bit of a sense, now clearly our self-quarantining and, and social distancing, uh, that can't really compare to the Apostle Paul being in a Roman dungeon. But I am beginning to understand a little bit of Paul's feeling for that, that, that sense of yearning that he had for churches filled with people that he loved, that for whatever reason, circumstances outside of his control, he could no longer be with them. And the tone of his letters so often have this this sense of, 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 I really wish we could be together. Well, we're going to hit that in the second chapter of First Thessalonians as Paul talks about his motives as a pastor. Um, in the first chapter, he talked to us about what a great church looks like. But in the second chapter, he's going to, he's going to carry on that conversation and he's going to talk about this gift that God gives when he gives a pastor uh, a, a flock of people who are devoted to following Jesus, who, who want to throw themselves into the Word of God. What a great gift that is to a pastor. But he's also going to talk about God's gift to that church when he gives them a pastor who loves the Word and who spends his life sharing life together. I think because we're cut off from each other by and large right now, uh, we do Zoom meetings and we do telephone calls and we text and we have social media, uh, but it's not the same. And we all know that it's not the same. It's what we need to do for right now, but there is this yearning in us to be together again. Well, I think First Thessalonians chapter 2 is going to be a great reminder of what God has given us at Evergreen and help us kind of put into words what we're feeling and and what we're hoping for the days ahead. So join me over the next few minutes and uh, open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's going to talk about pastors. Now, it's interesting, um, as I teach this, it's going to sound a little bit like, um, like I'm really putting pastors up on a pedestal and because Paul's going to paint this picture of the kind of pastor he is. But you have to understand our perspective on spiritual leadership is is kind of skewed in our culture, primarily because um, the way pastors 
slash priests slash ministers, uh, the way they're presented in popular culture. I mean, you've got things, you've got movies and books um, and plays that always, the, the, the pastor figure is, um, is just never real sharp. I mean, you've got old school stuff like uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof by Tennessee Williams, where the pastor is um, insensitive and crass. Uh, you have uh, you have that old play that was made into a movie called Inherit the Wind, and and, and the pastor is judgmental and he's legalistic and 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 and, and nobody really likes him. Uh, either either pastors are are judgmental and harsh, mean, or you have things like Pride and Prejudice where. Where uh, the minister there is is utterly worthless. I mean, he just kisses up to rich people and and tries to have a comfortable life, but but he has no nothing to offer people. You have um, the old Mash series. Father Mulcahy was nice and he was kind and gentle, uh, but no real spiritual leadership. Um, or you swing the other way where you have, um, uh, particularly in horror films, for example, the clergy that shows up in horror films, they're always in over their head. They're scared of whatever it is that, that the movie is about, or they're completely absent. I don't know how many movies we have nowadays where I, I think to myself, this picture has everything in the life of a person except... Somebody bringing truth into their lives. But pastors, by and large, are seen as legalistic and judgmental, or they're seen as polite but incompetent, or they're seen as irrelevant and are left completely absent. In that culture, the pastor is no longer the most respected person in the community. In in effect... Um, people always look at pastors sort of funny because they wonder what the angle is. Well, let's set aside all of those cultural misinterpretations of this role that God has created in his church. And let's look at what Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to find here that a pastor really is God's gift to a people. Look at, at the first part of this chapter. We're going to read... <laughs> We're going to read the first 12 verses. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered, and we were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive, Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but rather God, who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people either, from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead... We were gentle among you as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. 
We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's talk about the pastor's motives. In the first six verses, Paul is talking about the time that he spent in Thessalonica with this church. He was the founding pastor, and as he built that church and structured it so that they could survive under the next generation of leadership... He talks about uh, his motives for what he did in Thessalonica. He said, you know yourselves, brothers, that our visit with you was not without result. In other words, you remember we, we read last, uh, last time from Acts chapter 17, which gives us the historical background. And, and we know that Paul was run out of town in Thessalonica. The Jews caused such a ruckus that, that the brothers there had to help him escape uh, and, and travel to the next city, which was Berea. But while he was there, before the opposition came, he had great success in presenting the gospel and seeing people come to Jesus Christ. He let, he, before he was run out of town, he not only founded a church, but he structured it in a way that they could move forward without him. He says, we had previously suffered and we were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but also in Thessalonica. But he said, by that, we were emboldened by God to speak the gospel to you in spite of great opposition. The opposition there didn't keep Paul from doing what he was called to do as a pastor. But he's going to give us some explanations of why he did all of that, given the fact that, frankly, it would have been a lot easier to just pack his bags and keep moving on down the road. Thessalonica turned out to be one of the great churches in the New Testament, but its founding was in the middle of real serious opposition. So Paul wants them to understand what his motives were. Now, I wonder, because in other New Testament letters, Paul has to deal with charges that that are made by his opponents, by his enemies. He often has to deal with the accusation that uh, that he's just in this for what he can get out of it, that he that he holds the churches to some sort of obligation and that they financially support him or or do whatever. In other words, the charge is that Paul is a mercenary. What he wants them to understand in Thessalonica is the benefit to him physically, monetarily, the benefit to him regarding resources was very little and the cost of the effort that he invested there was huge. In other words, if you did a cost-benefit analysis, he's going to say the human benefit of his time in Thessalonica was not worth the opposition that he faced. So his motives couldn't have been at the level of just a mercenary approach to the ministry. He wasn't a charlatan. He wasn't doing this just uh, to get out of it what he could what he could get for himself. His claim of success requires. Uh, eyes of faith. He says, he, he says, our visit with you was not without result. 
we were emboldened uh, to teach. But in verse 3, he says, our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but rather God who examines our hearts. Look at it this way. For a pastor's motives, he says positively what does motivate him in verse 4 is that he has been given a sacred trust by God. Verse 4 says, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying a good pastor, the kind of pastor that is a gift to a church, is a pastor that doesn't do his job because of the paycheck. He doesn't do the job because uh, of the human approval. He doesn't do the job because of what he can sort of get for himself out of that church. He does the job primarily because he has been granted a sacred trust. God has put the delivery of the gospel in his hands and he takes that so seriously that he turns to the church and he delivers what has been entrusted to him. Listen, there are examples in our culture in every direction of what I would call mercenary pastors. Whether it's a private jet or a 15,000 square foot mansion, you have to ask yourself, what does the pastor get out of the role that he plays in the church? And if, if his motives are tied to material wealth, if his, if his, uh, if his motive is about fame and, and celebrity recognition, um, there, that's a real problem. Paul is going to say, my primary motive was God had called me and entrusted me with something that he meant for the church to have. But he says there's a screening test here. Verse 4, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, but rather God who examines our hearts. In other words, he says, he says there is a, a, a regular test of God looking into the heart of a pastor to check his motives. What that means is the pastor does what he does not because he's trying to get the approval of the people who sit in the chairs in, in the auditorium or or don't sit in the chairs and 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 watch from 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 somewhere else. That can't be his motivation. His motivation is I received a sacred trust to deliver something that has been given to me entrusted to me to give to those that are that are under my care but secondly he has to live with the sense that god is the one always looking into his heart to evaluate his motives listen you can put on a mask and you can convince people that you're more spiritual than you are i mean you you can you can figure out a way to snow people and 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 play the part of a pastor. But here's the person that you can't fool, and that is the Spirit of God who examines a pastor at the very core of his beings. He knows the innermost motives of a pastor. Paul says, if you can find a pastor who takes seriously the gospel that has been entrusted to him, who takes seriously the teaching of the Word of God, teaching in a way that makes it understandable 
to, to people. And you can find in that pastor uh, a heart that has only motives to bring pleasure and, and honor to God. Then the church has been given a great gift. Verse 3, to go back a verse, I wanted to do the positive before we do the negative. But verse 3 is where he's going to give us the negatives of what doesn't motivate him. In verse 3, he said, Our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. What does not motivate a godly pastor is error. That is, he hold, Paul said that he holds to the divine revelation of truth. He does not teach what is false. He does not teach what is untrue. He does not teach what is heretical. And he does not teach his own opinion. He's not motivated by error, but he's not motivated by impurity. This is the opposite of that, of, of what he says in verse four, the positive side, he's motivated by the fact that God measures his motives, that God knows his heart. In verse three, he says he's not motivated by a greed that grips him. In other words, he's not doing what he does for financial gain or benefit. Error, impurity, my translation says an intent to deceive. Uh, some, tra- some tra- translations say flattery. Uh, that sounds a little bit different, but, but actually it means the same thing. Flattery is usually a strategy to get somebody to, to, to respond to something in a way that they might not otherwise respond. That could be an intent to deceive. He says there's, the word means manipulation for personal gain. Again, when Paul was in Thessalonica, the cost was too high and the material rewards were too few, too meager to justify the idea that Paul was a manipulative charlatan. He wanted, he wanted them to understand that he did what he did out of pure motives. And that is a great gift to a church. The pastor's motives, he follows it up by talking about the pastor's manner. Look in verse 7. There's several uh, pictures, images that he uses here. In verse 7, he says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, in other words, we could have laid some demands on you that would have been burdensome, that would have been hard on the church. But he says, instead, we were gentle among you as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. The image here of a nursing mother, uh, if you've ever been privy to, to that kind of scene, uh, a mother who, who takes her baby and lovingly holds him close and provides the very thing that helps him grow, that, 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 that gives him life, there's a gentleness and a tenderness there. Paul says, we could have been a burden to you. We could have, uh, we could have strained you by our demands. But instead, we treated you like a little newborn. We treated you like a baby. We were gentle and we were careful to nurture you, to provide what you need for life. That was the pastor's manner with the people. Uh, drop down to verse 9. He said He's going to give us another uh, statement of that. In verse 9, he says, uh, For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers, Working night and day so that we would not burden any of you, we preached God's gospel to you. He says, we were not burdensome. We were like a supportive brother. The pastor didn't come in as a celebrity and sort of lay down requirements. I, uh, 
I had access to behind the scenes of a uh, of a Christian conference uh, a couple of years ago, and the speaker that was coming in, a, a well-known Christian celebrity author of of a number of books, and uh, and as he was preparing for the conference, uh, part of his agreement to come included a very specific list of requirements. Um, he wanted uh, he wanted a suite, uh, a hotel suite, in a particularly expensive hotel. He had uh, an expectation for uh, a certain grocery list of, of items that he wanted waiting for him in the room. Uh, it, it was a very precise list of the things that he demanded for him to come and, and spend two days leading a conference. And and I remember thinking I. I I've never thought to do that. I didn't know that was a thing. I mean, I've, I've spoken all over the world. I've spoken in conferences, both, both domestically and, and internationally. And it never dawned on me that it was a possibility that you could say, Hey, listen, I'm coming to speak at your conference, but, but I want these minimum requirements for my comfort. I've stayed in some crazy places and I've eaten some crazy foods because I thought that you just go and trust the Lord and just receive whatever's provided for you. Apparently, that's not a thing. Paul says, you have to remember, unlike some teachers that come in and lay out demands for them to do what they're going to do in your midst, he said, when we were there, we were like brothers. We came alongside you. We helped you. We went out of our way to not be a burden on you. That's a great gift to a church. And apparently, it's increasingly rare in our generation. In verse 10, he takes another picture, uh, and, and he says this, You are witnesses, and by the way, so is God. Now, that's a powerful statement. Don't pass over that. He's saying, you know this for a fact, but more than that, he's invoking God as a witness on his behalf that what he's about to say is true. Let me tell you something. If what you're about to say is not true, do not call God as a witness. He says, you know, and and God knows. You're witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk Worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says, I was like a nursing mother, tender and gentle. I was like a supportive brother. I carried my own weight and came alongside to help you carry yours. But I was also like a loving father. I encouraged your emotions. I urged, I comforted your spirit. And I implored or urged your will to decision, to action. He said, I I, I came to you like a father. Who, who had your best interests at heart, nudging you forward, encouraging you, pushing you, stirring your nest so that you could become everything that God wanted you to be. What a picture of a pastor. Tender and nurturing like a nursing mother. Supportive and not burdensome like a brother who comes alongside. But like a loving father pushing you in the right ways, at the right time, to be who you are called, who you're meant to be. What a great picture 
of what a pastor is supposed to be with God's people. He says, let's drop back to verse 8. We skipped that. Here's the pastor's mission. Verse 8, he says, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. (laughs) A pastor's job is not only to inform you, but to give you his life. (laughs) I have a friend who pastors in another state. We went to seminary together, so we've known each other a long time. And it's been a number of years since we've had this conversation, but I remember talking to him. And his approach to his church is that it's hard for him to be the pastor if he's too close in friendship with the people that are there. Accordingly, uh, he and his wife don't really do anything socially with the church. Um, they keep a kind of professional distance because he feels like if he gets too close, if the people know him too well, it compromises, I guess, his ability to, to have authority and as the leader. We've argued a couple of times over the years because... Um, because I think that that is a wrong-headed approach to pastoring a church. I don't think the pastor is a professional leader who has to maintain distance so he doesn't compromise the authority of his position. Listen, if you're leading a church by the authority of your position, you're not really leading the church. People don't respond to the position of pastor. It's not, you're going to do this because I'm the pastor, and I say to you, the, the role of a pastor is to be one of the family whose role in the family happens to be the primary teacher of God's Word. But there's a credibility that goes with that teaching that comes from people understanding that the man standing on the stage teaching and, and the guy that they see socially or, or, or run, run across at Walmart or, or, or see somewhere else, that's the same guy. He doesn't put on his pastor clothes and step into a role that he acts in public and then takes all that off and goes home to be somebody else. Paul said, our our mission was not only to give you God's word, but to give you our life, to invest ourselves in you. Listen, a church will never achieve real community If the call to community comes from somebody who's not himself invested in that family. Now, I know the risk of teaching something like this chapter of 1 Thessalonians. The risk is you're all sitting out there in your homes or, or, or at work or wherever you're listening to this right now. And, 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 and I know you, you've got, I've just given you a checklist and you're going, okay, Gabbard. No, not that one. No, no, not that one. I understand the risk. Paul is holding up a great ideal here. And it's a challenge to look at this ideal and to evaluate the pastors that lead Evergreen. Not just the senior pastor, but all the pastors. Do we relate to our, to our family as nursing mothers? 
as supportive brothers coming alongside, as loving fathers, urging and and, and cajoling and 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 motivating. Do we have as a goal to not only give you the truth that's been entrusted to us to hand to you, but also our lives along with that? I know that's a high standard. And Paul sets the bar pretty high for pastors. And unfortunately, I think most pastors in most places um, don't even try and achieve it because the bar is so high. But I will say this. That bar is not meant to be the, the, the way out their goal. That bar is meant to be the standard description of a man who leads a church as pastor. It's a high bar. And Paul sets it there on purpose. He's not only showing that he reached that bar, but he's calling all the rest of us who serve with that title of pastor. He's calling us to strive to be that kind of leader. But I tell you, if you can find that kind of leader, he is a great gift from God to a church family. Well, let's look where this passage goes because... After talking about a pastor as God's gift to a people, he's going to begin to talk about a people as God's gift to a pastor. Now, really, the motive, the 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 mission, not the motive and mission, really the goal uh, is in verse 12. And that's going to be the transition into the next section. He says, we encouraged, comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, that's what we do in church. We're not here to pat you on the head and tell you that you're just fine the way you are. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to just sort of fill an empty place in your schedule. What we do here is designed to implore you, to encourage you, to, to, to compel you forward to one thing. And this should be your goal in life, to walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Well, now he's going to begin to describe what a church looks like when it's made up of people who are pursuing that worthy walk. In verse 13, he says, this is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the message about God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is the message of God, which also works effectively in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are always completing the number of their sins, and wrath has overtaken them at last. Let's talk about this. He says there is, um, uh, as a gift to a pastor, it's a good thing when God gives a pastor a church that has the right foundation. They had, in in verse 13, 
He said, we constantly thank God because when you received the message, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is the message from God. In other words, this was a church that recognized the truth of what Paul was teaching, and they took that to heart because they believed it was a message from God. A church that receives the word, a church that claims the word, a church that operates by the word, a church that holds on to the word is a church that can withstand and succeed against anything. Nothing can overcome that church. Nothing can disprove that church. The word is its foundation. They had a kind of awe. At the idea that they were hearing the very words of creator, almighty God himself. Listen, one of the problems in, in our culture today is that there are too many pastors in too many churches that don't, that don't have a devotion to the word of God. They're not serious about teaching it. They're not diligent about making it understandable. In fact, they're sharing lots of things that are not even related to the Word of God. But there are churches where those pastors serve, and those churches are filled with people who are willing to accept that sort of baby food approach to what they get on Sunday mornings. I've been told over and over in our culture that the attention span of people nowadays because of television is 17 minutes and i know i know pastors i can give you their names i know pastors who preach a 17 minute sermon every week because they say that's all our people can can absorb okay well first of all i think every part of that is false I think people can be trained to have the attention span for whatever they find value in. I mean, uh, look at me. I, I, back back in the old days when we had baseball on television, I remember watching a game one night, and it went into extra innings. Tenth inning, eleventh inning, twelfth inning, thirteenth inning. Listen, I needed to go to bed. I mean, it was late. It was now close to midnight, fourteenth inning, but... I couldn't quit. I was determined to see the end of that game. That game lasted 19 innings, and I went to bed about 2 o'clock in the morning. But my attention span was fine because I was determined that I wanted to see this. Listen, there's no excuse for sermons to be boring. I mean, frankly, the Word of God is not boring. There are boring teachers of the Word of God. But if a pastor does what he's supposed to do, the Word of God should be captivating. It should be enticing. It should be something that, that, that you, that you love to take in. But it is a great gift to a pastor to have a people who are unwilling to settle for 17 minutes of baby food. They want meat. They want the Word taught. Now, they want it taught in a way that they can understand it. They don't want a, uh, a lot of $5 words that, 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 that they can't grasp. But they want the Word. That's what Paul was saying about the Thessalonians. They recognized that what he was saying was not his message. This was the Word of God himself. And they were in awe of that. And they were soaking it up. They were absorbing it. Let me tell you, 
I have preached and taught literally across the world. It's been one of the great privileges that God has given me. But I would rather teach the Bible to the people of Evergreen than anywhere else on the planet. For lots of reasons, but not the least of which is that this collection of people, this community of faith, they love to have the word taught and they receive it and they act on it. And I'm telling you, that is a beautiful gift that God gives to a pastor. A church that has its foundation on the word and loves the word. There's also the church's imitation. I love this in verse 14. He says, for you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people in your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. He says, this is a church that imitates godliness where they find it. There was no, there was no group here in Thessalonica that was that, that had a martyr complex. They weren't looking to, uh, to be punished. They weren't seeking persecution. Uh, but they did have a demonstration of faith in the life and suffering that they had, which was evidence of their genuine faith uh, as a church and as individuals. Here's the thing. An individual can put Jesus on display. Okay, In your life, as you spend time in the Word, as you are transformed by the Spirit of God, as you walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been given, you can individually put Jesus on display everywhere you go. And that is the calling for us as individual believers. But God didn't leave it at the level of the individual. He meant for the church to be a collection of that kind of, uh, of person, persons, and the church together can put godliness on display. We can put uh, the presence of Christ on display. Through ministry, we can put the love of Christ on display. We do that corporately. We do that together. Paul says that it's a great gift to a pastor when, when a church is determined to imitate godliness, to find models mentors. Do you know that you can have individual mentors? You can have somebody that invests in your life and and they can teach you. But do you know churches can be mentors to other churches? I talked about this last last week. The idea that God has is now calling Evergreen to be an influencer of other churches. In a sense, to use the language of mentoring, he's calling us to provide an example and and some instruction to help mentor other collections of believers. He says in Thessalonica, they followed the churches in Judea that they watched. They learned how to follow Jesus. They learned how to do ministry in the face of persecution because that was already happening in Judea. The church in Jerusalem was the very first church to suffer opposition and persecution. He's saying they learned from that church how to face persecution and do ministry in Thessalonica. But the interesting thing is, while they learned that by watching other churches, Paul has already said in chapter 1 that now 
Thessalonica has become the church that he points other people to, to learn how to do church. They were willing to learn from somebody else. And now they've been put in a place where they're the model that others are learning from. Man, you don't know what it does to a pastor. When I go to state convention meetings or I find myself at, at an evangelism conference or I get a call from, from somebody in the Baptist building in Oklahoma City and they'll, they'll, they'll start the conversation this way. They'll say, man, I'm hearing great things about Evergreen. Well, you know, that sounds a little bit like flattery, like the next step is here's what I need from you. So I always ask this question. I mean, I've done it for years. Man, am I hearing great things about Evergreen? I say, really? What have you heard? Because instantly I know if they're just blowing smoke, but almost always they say, well, I heard from so-and-so that your church is doing this, or I saw the results of this that your church did, or "I, I found out that your church is doing this. There are those practical things. Well, that's a great encouragement to me. Because we're not doing anything that we do here so that people in Oklahoma City will notice us. That is not our motivation. We're not here to try and be uh, the bright, shining uh, child of, of the denomination. We don't even have much in the way of denominational uh, ties other than our support for for the global mission work that, that, that Southern Baptists do. And yet, I like it when I find out that God is putting what we're doing on display because other people, even when we're unaware of it, other people are learning how to do church by watching what we're doing in the same way that over the last 20 years, we've learned some things by watching the way other people do it. As we've always said at Evergreen that we'll steal from anybody. We're not against stealing good ideas the the hard part is knowing what's worth stealing but it's a great gift to a pastor to have a church that is so serious about doing what we've been called to do that other people begin to notice we've imitated godliness as a community of believers and we're putting Jesus on display now in a way that other people can come and imitate us what a great gift There's also the church's opposition. Paul is going to talk here in, in, in verses 15 and 16. He says, these people who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us, they displease God and are hostile to everyone, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Paul's describing the opposition that he's that he's run into in different places. Typically, what he's describing here are, are oppositions from, from within Jewish circles. But he's, uh, here's the thing. We just fin- finished a, a teaching series that took us about eight months in 1 Corinthians. I entitled that, that series, Church for Broken People. And the reality is that Paul's letter to the first Corinthians is a salvage operation. Paul is trying to go to a dysfunctional church that doesn't operate properly, that is not a good witness to the community, that is not a great example of putting Christ on display. And he's determined not to let that church disappear, but to recover it, to strengthen it, to teach them how to be the church. 
In Thessalonica, he has a much better church to work with, uh, a church that, that is a great example. It makes sense, spiritually speaking, that in Thessalonica, the opposition, the spiritual warfare against the church would be much greater because in Corinth, the church had already been so compromised by the culture that it wasn't really making an impact on the world around them. Their problems in Corinth were basically internal problems. Now that's, that, that, that's an issue. A church that is not changing the world because they, there's internal disharmony. That's just not acceptable. And Paul spends 16 chapters in his letter called 1 Corinthians trying to take that church systematically through one problem after another to fix, to deal with those issues because they're broken from the inside and it, and, and they have no significant impact in the culture because of it. Thessalonica is different. What Paul is describing in these verses is external opposition. Now, here's the, here's the paradox. Internal opposition will kill a church's influence. External opposition remarkably tends to magnify a church's influence. It has always been said throughout church history that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What that saying means, and it goes back to the, to the patristic church fathers, the ancient church fathers, what that saying means is the more you squeeze a, a healthy church, the more you persecute a healthy church, the more you attack a healthy church, the more likely that church is to operate in dependence and in the power of the Spirit of God and to break out and do things that is exactly opposite of what the persecutors were hoping would happen. Satan wants to intimidate us into inactivity. And yet, the harder he pushes against healthy churches because he's against what we're doing, the more the Spirit empowers us to face the challenges and he, he, he broadens our influence. The, the church in the Roman Empire, in waves of persecution, it wasn't a steady persecution over, over the span of 300 years. Under different emperors at different times, persecution would ramp up and, and different emperors would, were, were determined to, to, um, to wipe out Christianity and they would die and, and it would die down for a time until another emperor came and he would decide that Christianity needed to go. So there were waves of persecution about every other generation for about 300 years in, in, in the early church. And what they found out was every time persecution came, the church exploded. Because as they were living lives of practical godliness, as they were influencing the people around them, as they were touching the lives of people who didn't know Jesus, they were come, the, the, the government would come and arrest the, the Christians. They would take them. They would torture them. They would persecute them. Sometimes they would execute them. And, and, and people that were not followers of Jesus were looking at this saying, Hey, I know that guy. He's my neighbor. He lives on my street. He's the nicest guy I know. He's the most dependable, the most helpful. That guy is the best person I know. And you're telling me that he's worthy of execution because he follows this Jesus? 
I want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like the persecutors. I had somebody tell me years ago, as I was facing some opposition in in another church, he came to me and I, I had really struggled with God in my response. I wanted to just handle the situation. I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to go public and I wanted to just deal with this, this problem in the church. And, and God really tied my hands and more importantly, he tied my tongue. But I had somebody at the end of that time say, listen, I, I'm not in any inner circles. I'm not on any boards or in any kind of leadership. I don't know anything about what's going on behind the scenes. But I watched how my pastor behaved and I watched how that group behaved and I decided I would rather stand with my pastor. He didn't know anything about the issues. All he knew was what he saw. As this generation continues to attack the church, remember that external opposition is not our problem. I mean... Internal op- in, internal disharmony, that's what kills a church. When opposition comes from outside, it's a great gift to a pastor to have a people who respond to external opposition by, by buckling down in the power of the Spirit and just doing what God called them to do. The church, and we'll see what comes out of this uh, this very strange season that, that that our world is in right now. I'm interested to see how the church responds to the new normal that comes down in the weeks and months and, and years ahead in, in our generation. Because I think this could go a lot of different ways. But the church, no matter what happens in our culture... The church is called to be the church and to walk the walk, to put Jesus on display. And we're going to do our best to keep doing that. A church filled with people like that, that is a great gift to a pastor. A pastor can be a gift to his people. A people can be a gift to his pastor. But altogether, pastor and people, we're called evergreen. Our greatest desire is to be a gift back to the Lord. Look at verse 17. He says, But as for us, brothers, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I love these verses because Paul is going to give us a picture of visible affection between a pastor and a church. Uh, I listen to too many guys who unfortunately are in situations where they complain about the way the church treats the pastor. And and I hear in their complaints uh, sometimes bad ways that pastors treat the people. Paul is talking to these believers in Thessalonica, and you can just feel it. We were forced to leave for a short time, but we greatly desired. We made every effort to return. I'm starting to identify with these verses in ways that I never could have imagined before. I mean, honestly, 
I, I, I'm glad that technology allows us to, to stay connected. You know, our phones, our text messages, our social media. I'm glad God allows me to still teach a couple of times a week and, and, and speak to the people who are called Evergreen. I'm grateful for all of that. But I'm telling you, there is an empty place in my heart. Because these chairs, they're typically filled with people that I love and that I want to be together with. Paul says we were hindered through circumstances brought on by the enemy that were no fault of our own. That's what he's saying in these verses. We yearned to be together. We had made every effort to be together, but we were hindered by things outside of our control. And we couldn't get there. But you can just feel the depth of His love and appreciation for this church. And even though it's a one-sided conversation, you know that His feeling toward them was reciprocated and you can just use your sanctified imagination and feel how desperate the church was to see Paul again, to have him back in their midst, to teach the Word of God with, with them soaking up the truth that, that God had, had entrusted to him to deliver to them. We're going to make the best of this situation. And we're going to keep being the church even though we're scattered. But one of these days, the hindrance is going to be gone. And we're going to be here together. And it's going to be awesome because like Paul and the Thessalonians, there is in this place something I've never quite had in the same way anywhere else. And that is a mutual affection within the family for each other. Pastors and people, people and people, all of us together. It is a remarkable thing to experience. And like Paul, I ache. I yearn to have it back. But look at this. While he says there's visible affection here, he finishes with the victorious adoration there. Look at the last verses. In verse 19, he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul starts to think because he's separated from a people that he wants to be with, it, it drives his mind to the end place where separation will no longer be an issue. He begins to think about Jesus coming back when the church will never be parted from one another again. Our fellowship will be permanent. It'll be uninterrupted, unhindered by any external circumstance. And he says, and when we get to that day... When Jesus comes and we're together, I am going to put you on a silver platter and I'm going to present you to Jesus because you as a church are the joy, the glory, the crown of which I boast 
You are the result of the ministry that God has entrusted to me. Paul said, and I am willing to be judged in the eyes of Jesus by your lives because you are just that solid as followers of Jesus. What an incredible thing. What an amazing thing. Paul is saying, I'm willing to stand before Jesus and 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 let him evaluate my ministry by the result that he sees in the church at Thessalonica. <laughs> Think about this. You ever if you've ever been a parent of, of little ones, you ever had a, a little one go out into the into the backyard to play? And they pluck up those little yellow dandelions that are all around the backyard. You know, those weeds. And they put together eight or ten of those little flowers. And they come to mama. And they're just beaming. Because they're bringing mama pretty flowers. Listen, if you're a good mother, you don't say, leave those weeds outside. No, you go, oh my stars. These are the most beautiful flowers I've ever seen. Thank you so much. Can I give you a hug? Why? Because that child is presenting what they have and there is such a joy to be able to give that gift. Now we know in the big picture of things, the gift itself may not have great value, but the heart of the child is what pleases the mother who receives those dandelions. I feel like that toddler sometimes because I think when we come to Jesus, when Paul says, look at this church that I pastored, when I say, Lord, let me, let me show you evergreen. I know we're not perfect. And I know that, that against the perfection of Jesus, we're full of warts and flaws. But I have such confidence, first of all, that you are pleasing to Jesus. And I have such confidence that Jesus measures us by the hearts that we've given to him. That I don't have any problem standing with Paul and saying, Lord, here's evergreen. I'm willing to be judged by the people that you see here because they love you they serve you they adore your word they love the brothers you said that we would be known by the love we have for each other father the world knows evergreen is a special place because they see an undying devotion first to you And then to each other. And that is not just a gift of a pastor to the people or a gift of the people to the pastor. But when we present evergreen, all of us together, we become in that day a gift to Jesus. Remember, what's the image that the New Testament uses? 
Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And one day, just like that bridegroom who stands beside me on the stage as we watch the bride walk down that aisle. Man, I love looking at the faces of bridegrooms when they see the bride, sometimes for the very first time that day. And they just beam because of the love they have, because of the beauty that they see, because all the waiting is finished. When we assemble to present ourselves to Jesus, that bridegroom will have a look in his eyes, a sparkle, because he will see the bride that he loves. He will see the beauty of what she has become. And he'll know that the wait is finally over and we'll be together forever. I don't know about you, but reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it makes me want to go to church. I can't wait to see you. I love each and every one of you. Be safe. Be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.